0: We enter the kingdom of God. We enter into life through the narrow door, the one door, and that's true faith in Jesus Christ. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. I want to start off today by asking you all a question, and here it is. Are you, narrow-minded? Are you narrow-minded? Do you have any narrow-minded? Raise your hand if you're a narrow-minded person. All right, we've got a few of us that will admit to it that you're narrow-minded, right? So I see some of you were looking next to the person. You didn't raise your hand, but you're looking next to the person, yeah, the person next to you there. So I saw that there. But So being narrow-minded here, let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, what does it mean to be narrow-minded? Well, one definition has this. It says narrow-minded means not willing to accept opinions, beliefs, behaviors, etc that are unusual or different from one's own, right? Not willing to accept opinions, beliefs, behaviors, etc that are unusual or different from one's own. Now, I think that generally speaking, generally speaking, it is not a good thing to be narrow minded. That is, when we get locked into very rigid patterns of thought, Unwilling to listen to others, unwilling to listen to the opinions of others, to become rigid in your outlook then, to never grow, to never change. So that's not a good thing to be narrow-minded then in that sense. But on the other hand, sometimes it is good to be narrow-minded if one is talking about vital truths, right? Vital proven truths. Like, for example, is it being narrow-minded to tell someone not to step in front of a speeding bus? I think, is that being narrow Well, that's just your opinion that that's a bad thing to do, right? Now, I think that would be, that's not being narrow-minded, telling them don't step in front of a speeding bus or or tell them don't jump off the roof of a skyscraper. Again, I don't think that's being narrow-minded to tell people. That's not a good idea to do that. I don't think it's narrow-minded to say, you know, the sun rises in the, well appears appears to rise in the east and set in the west. And so, well, that's just your opinion. I think it rises in the west and sets in the east. Well, sorry, it rises in the east and sets in the west, right? So sometimes if it means being very rigid, locked in, unable to listen to others, unable to learn, unable to grow, no, it's not a good thing then to be narrow-minded. But if by narrow-minded you're simply being locked into the truth, regardless sometimes of what someone else may think of, then we do need to be narrow-minded in that regard then, don't we? You know, Christians are sometimes accused of being narrow-minded on this matter of where salvation is found. You know, we assert that Jesus alone is the way and the truth and the life. But is that being narrow-minded in a negative sense? Or is it simply asserting a vital, proven truth? I would suggest that it is the latter, asserting a vital, proven truth. So when we say that salvation is found in Christ alone, we are not being arrogant or narrow-minded. We are simply repeating what Jesus said about himself. Now, if you want to call Jesus arrogant and narrow-minded, well, that's another discussion then, isn't it? But if Jesus is who he claimed to be, and he did what the scriptures say he did, and by the way, we have very good reason to believe that he was who he claimed to believe and that he did what the scriptures say he did, then we would be quite wrong to assert against the words of Jesus himself that salvation can be found in someone or some way other than Jesus. We're simply asserting what he, who is the truth, said about himself then. So we are continuing here then today in our series Unique, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ, a harmony of the Gospels. We are following the order of events in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A harmony of those events is put together as suggested in this book, One Perfect Life by John MacArthur. Our message here today, the narrow door, the narrow door, that Jesus is the narrow way, the narrow door to life. We will be looking at our text then in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 35. And what is the big idea? What do I want us to take away from this? Here it is. We must enter the kingdom of God through the narrow door of true faith in Jesus. We enter the kingdom of God. We enter into life through the narrow door, the one door. And that's true faith in Jesus Christ. Before we look at our text here today, our little context, Jesus has been ministering to people in the vicinity of Jerusalem. He is making his way to Jerusalem knowing that before too much longer, he is going to give his life on the cross there and then be raised again but he is now ministering in the outskirts of Jerusalem. And the Jewish people were very eager for the arrival of their Messiah. They looked to his coming in order to set them free from the oppression of Rome and to restore the kingdom of Israel and to bring the nation to great prominence and power and glory. And Jesus was drawing large crowds. And the people were amazed by this. They were amazed by his miracles. But when he said things that were challenging or hard to understand, many of the people turned away. He seemed to want something from them than they were willing to give. He wanted something more from them than they were willing to give. Now, he had declared that he was the good shepherd, that his sheep hear his voice and follow him, that he was calling out his flock from among them, the Jews, but he declared, though, too, that he must go. He must go and get sheep from another fold, Who are these sheep from another fold that he must go and get? Gentiles. Aren't you glad he had another fold? (laughs) So what did he mean? He had come for more than just his own people, the Jews. He'd come for all people. And that he was calling people out, not only from them, but also from among the Gentiles. And so people wonder, what does he mean by that? What does Messiah mean by that? How how is that, this calling Gentiles, what does that have to do with restoring our nation to greatness? But of course, they didn't fully understand what the kingdom was, did they? They didn't understand the plan of God. So he says, let's start in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22. Luke chapter 13, verse 22. We're told, he, Jesus, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last, who will be first, and some are first, who will be last. So Jesus speaks here of the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Jesus taught that many from Israel would not be in the kingdom, whereas many from outside Israel will be. Now, we listen to that and we hear that and say, okay, we, we understand that now. We're live, kind of living on the other side of these events and we understand better. But if we were listening to him at that time, not knowing what we know now, this was shocking. This was a shocking message. You say, you're the Messiah, you're the Jewish Messiah, and yet you're claiming Many the Jews, our fellow countrymen, will not enter the kingdom, but, but there will be many Gentiles from all over the world? What are you talking about? And so someone asked, Jesus then, well will only a few then going to be saved? See, apparently his followers were discouraged that this message of the kingdom wasn't sweeping the nation as they thought it would. Now, it certainly was true. There were a lot of people going to see him. The crowds were large. They were amazed by his miracles. They gasped at some of the things he said to their religious rulers and authorities. But at the same time, though, they saw that it seems that Jesus continually was met with great opposition their leaders were opposed to him. And it seemed that only very few were truly accepting him. So, yes, the crowds that came to see him were large. But his committed followers were increasingly scarce. Why was that? And then Jesus would sometimes say things that it seemed were. Deliberately deliberately designed to discourage people from following him. To discourage the half-hearted from following him. He talked about how hard it would be to be his follower. Even being willing to die. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now earlier in his ministry, he had declared that the way to life is narrow and that few are those who find it. So someone asked, could, it, could this really be true, Jesus? Is it true that few people will be saved? Earlier, Jesus had said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Later he would say, Jesus said, would say, I am the way and the truth and the life and who can come to the Father except from him? No one. No one can come to the Father but by me. I ask, well, why was Jesus so narrow-minded? Why was he so narrow-minded? Why was he insisting he alone is the way, the truth, and the life? Because he is. Because he is, right? Why was Jesus so narrow-minded? Well, because he is the truth, and what he says is true. But I would suggest the reason he is so narrow-minded is because. What does, what does God require for us? Uh-huh. Someone's been paying attention here. Shelly, you've been paying attention. What does God require of us? Perfection. Some would say, oh, well, how, how, do, we, how do we get eternal life? How do we get to, to heaven? Well, faith in Jesus. And yes, that's right, but faith in Jesus is what supplies what God requires, which is being perfect. God requires absolute moral perfection. Anybody uh, anybody do that here? That's why we a no, and that's why we needed a savior. That's right. You've really been paying attention here, Shelley. So, that's right. As I've said before, do you want God to Well, wait a minute. Why that's really tough. Can can he, you know, budge just can he grade on a curve maybe or something? No, you don't want God to, to grade on a curve. You want him to demand absolute moral perfection. Why? Or else, we'd be here. or else we'd have a world exactly like we have right here, right? Is this the kind of world you want to live in forever and ever and ever? Now. No. God requires absolute perfection. And the truth is, no religion... No human effort, including, by the way, is Christianity in some senses a religion just like any other? Can it be just another religion? It can be, right? You can practice it as a religion. If by that we mean what? Certain rituals and, and, and maybe human efforts that people put into it. Now, the true faith of Christianity is not just another religion, right? It is a relationship with the true and the living God, through faith in Jesus, right? But there's a lot of folks out there that practice a form of Christianity that is what? Very human-centered, man-centered, human effort-centered. And so, no religion, no human efforts, none of these things, can they ever make you perfect? No, they can't. Well, how in the world can we enter into life when God requires perfection and no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, we'll never be perfect? Well, the answer is, he did it for us. He lived a perfect life for us. Only he is perfect. And then he gives us, he credits us with that perfection and makes us perfect in him. So only he is perfect, and he must give us that perfection. God requires that perfect righteousness. It's a gift, and it's the only way, and that is why Jesus is the only way, and that's why he's so narrow-minded about this stuff. So Jesus' teaching was clear: a person must accept what He was saying to enter the kingdom, to repent and believe in Him. Now, to the average person in Jesus' day, they thought, "What? Well, just being just being uh, just being Jewish that was uh, that was sufficient to enter the kingdom." They thought, but Jesus says, "No." And so he tells a story. He tells a story about a man who was giving a feast, a banquet. And after he had closed the door to the banquet, no one else could come in because they were too late. In fact, he, even this host of the feast calls these persons outside evildoers. Do we have any evildoers in here? Every hand should be up, right? Because all of us, apart from Christ are evildoers, right? You think, but I'm not as bad as my next door neighbor. It's not an issue of comparing ourselves one to another, is it? The issue is comparing ourselves to the perfection of God. And we all fall short, don't we? We all fall short. So these latecomers at the feast then were responding, oh, well, Oh we we know you, we we saw you we we've, we ate and drank with you. you you we saw you teaching in our streets, so this is an obvious reference to jesus 's ministry among the people of that generation. Oh, oh, we know you, Jesus, yeah, we heard you, we saw you, we talked with you we 're good, right but jesus point though in telling that story was that people had to respond to his invitation. At that time, for a time would come when it would be too late and they would not be allowed in the kingdom. And so Jesus spoke directly, telling the crowds that judgment would come on those who refused his message, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and they will be thrown out. That is, there will be such regret but the godly ones in the nation, represented by Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, they will be in the kingdom of God. Only the godly, the righteous, will be in the kingdom. And those remarks were stunning for the people of Jesus' day to hear. Again, most of them just assumed that well, because they were physically related to Abraham, they would naturally enter into the promised kingdom. But Jesus says, not so. Only the righteous will enter. But then he went on to say something that was even more revolutionary in those days. In fact, it was devastating. It was devastating to those who assumed that only Jew, the Jewish nation would be involved in the kingdom. Jesus explained that Gentiles would be added to the kingdom. And even in place of many of the Jewish people. He said that they would come from the four corners of the world, representing what various popular, north, south, east, west. Who are, who are these folks coming from north, south, and east and west to enter into the kingdom? Gentiles. Right? Now those listening to Jesus' words really should not have been surprised by this teaching because the prophets before had said these same things. Isn't it something, we, we've said something, we, we, we've read it, we've heard it, we know it, and yet somehow it just shocks us when we're told it, right? So even though the prophets before had said that Gentiles would be in the kingdom, many of the people in Jesus' day, they believed, though, that they were superior to these folks, these Gentiles from the north and the south and the east and the west. In fact, when Jesus had begun his ministry in Nazareth and he mentioned the fact that Gentiles would be included to the exclusion of some of their fellow Jews, the people became so angry they tried to kill him. Remember, he was teaching in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. We're told in Luke chapter 4, verse 20, it says, And he, Jesus, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words coming from his mouth. Okay, so far so good, right? And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Translation, Elijah didn't go to his fellow Jews. He went to, their fellow Israelites, he went to a Gentile woman and ministered to a Gentile woman. It says that there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Only a Gentile was cleansed. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. So they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I've told you before that um, with this story, after having had that opportunity then now to to visit Israel, to visit, to see Nazareth, and to see what that looks like. I appreciate this story a whole lot more about the threat to throw him over the cliff. To me, it always seemed like, what, they're going to toss him like 10 feet? That's what a cliff meant, you know, where I grew up. and About 10 feet or something? Oh, no. See, Nazareth is built into the side of a mountain, and the cliffs are like 1,000-foot drops. Who here thinks that I went right up to the very edge and looked over it? Yes, I did. Of course I did, right? Uh-huh. And it's like, yeah, I wouldn't want to get I wouldn't want to get thrown down that. And why were they so angry with him? Because he was saying Gentiles would be saved and Jews wouldn't. What? So they considered themselves to be first in every way, but they would be left. They thought that they were the blessed ones, the first, but they would be last. That is, they would be left out of the kingdom. And in contrast, some of the Gentiles, considered the last, the least, the unimportant, they would be in the kingdom, and they would actually, they would be first in importance. This was a shocking message indeed, and was just one more reason why many of the religious rulers and authorities wanted to get rid of him and be done with him, to shut him up. In fact, we're told then, continuing at verse 31, we said, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. Behold, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We see a lament over Jerusalem the Pharisees warned Jesus. They said, hey, Jesus, uh, Herod is seeking to kill you. You better go away. He's seeking to kill you. Now, were they concerned about Jesus' welfare? They said, Jesus, watch out. Herod's trying to get you. You, you, you better go. You better, you better go away from here because Herod's looking for you. So out of love and concern for Jesus' safety and well-being, they warned him, Right? No. What were they doing? Trying to get rid of him, get him out of here, right? Hey, he's coming for you. It was a pretext to get rid of Jesus or to try to shut him up, maybe scare him into silence. But Jesus had stated that his goal, his mission, was to reach Jerusalem And that doesn't mean his goal was what? Was to physically stand on the streets of Jerusalem. When reached Jerusalem, what does that mean? What was his goal in reaching Jerusalem? That was referring to what? He was going to die on the cross and rise again. That's the whole reason he had come, right? So he would go to Jerusalem, and he was well on his way. And so Jesus responds Go tell that fox. Now we read that and we're just like, okay, that's interesting. Go tell that fox. Herod is that fox? What do you mean? Well, a fox was considered to be what a very devious and cunning animal, and it was considered a pest and a word. Now we see foxes; we think they're cute, right? How many of you? I, I've seen them. Around, how many of you seen like a little fox like running around here sometimes around Wonder Lake, right? Yep. And not if you have chickens, you don't like the foxes, right? So, but there you go. <laughs> and so the people didn't like foxes that much. They were considered a pest and worthless and devious and cunning. So what is Jesus saying to, about Herod? Oh, Herod says, he's, Herod's looking for you, Jesus. And he says, go and tell that worthless, devious something or other like this, right? Jesus did not have a really high opinion of Herod, of his character <laughs> or, his, well, uh, or his actions here. Not very kind words for Herod, but Jesus was accurately describing Herod's character and behavior. And by the way, this Herod is Herod Antipas. He is not the Herod when Jesus was born. This Herod Antipas was the son of of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one Jesus was born and the one that tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was a young child in Bethlehem, right? So this is his son, Herod Antipas. Like father, like son, right? And like grandson later, by the way. But Jesus says, today, tomorrow, and then I, I'm on the third day I must finish my course what he was saying was is he had a mission and he had a plan and he was going to accomplish that regardless of what Herod or anybody else thought or said or threatened. He had a mission and he was going to fulfill it, period. And nothing was going to deter him from fulfilling that mission. He would continue on the schedule that he had set for himself. By the way, did, uh, did events spiral out of control and Jesus ended up getting himself crucified? No. He was in control every minute of the way, even down to the very second he gave his last breath. He was following his timetable, his schedule, and Herod or anyone else wasn't going to change that or keep him from fulfilling it. The goal was Jerusalem, and it wasn't Jerusalem where he would die and rise again. He would present himself publicly to the religious authorities there, and they would put him to death, but he would rise again. So it is at this point then that Luke records the rejection of Jerusalem that is, the rejection of the nation as a whole, of Jesus. And Jesus laments for Jerusalem. He laments for the city. He laments for the people. He laments for the nation. That he longed to protect it as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That is, what, tenderly and lovingly, but the people were not willing. But the nation And by the way, was there a long history of the people of God killing God's prophets? Sadly, there was, right? There was a long history of them rejecting God's prophets, and now they were rejecting him too. And Jesus says, your house is left to you desolate or abandoned. Like, this was the end for now. Now he would continue to offer himself as a messi- as the Messiah, to individuals, but the course of the nation was now set. Jesus quotes from Psalm one eighteen, verse twenty six, where Jesus declared that the people of the city they would not see him again till they said that he was the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now some think that, well, that was fulfilled at the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, right? No, I think there's more to it than that. Because I think what this is referring to here is it said, well, the nation, they were rejecting him and they would not receive him. The nation would not receive him until he comes Again and enters the city when the whole nation will receive him as the king and the ruler that he rightly is. That will yet happen. So Jesus spoke to the people then, his people, the Jews then. He upended the people's expectations of him and the nature of the kingdom of God and he shocked them by declaring that few would enter the kingdom because the people of that day believed that they would enter simply because they were Jews now some people would be excluded some of the the people knew that some people would be excluded from the kingdom who do you think the people thought would be excluded from the kingdom <laughs> gentiles absolutely of course but even among the jew who The sinners, oh yeah, sinners are excluded. And by that, they meant what? Oh, you know, like tax collectors, prostitutes. You know, know, the really bad people. Oh, yeah, yeah, they'll be excluded. But all of us, oh, we're not bad. We're good people, right? Hmm. I'm not as bad as that guy, right? I noticed you were looking at me when you said that, Jerry, so. So yeah, they thought, sure, some people will be excluded, Notorious sinners, you know, prostitutes, tax collectors, and Gentiles, of course. But Jesus declared, no, the way is narrow. The time was short. And they must enter it now before it is too late. But how must they enter the kingdom? By repentance and faith. By repentance and faith. Jesus continues to speak then to all people today. He still offers the kingdom, the kingdom of eternal life and blessing. But the only way to enter that kingdom of life is narrow. He tells people that they must strive, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, is Jesus saying then that we must strive? That is, is we must work to earn our salvation? See right there, I knew it, there it is. Jesus said, strive to enter. Work hard to earn your salvation, right? Is that what he meant? No. What was he saying? Well, the reality is, is we cannot earn our salvation. Well, what did he mean then, but when he said, strive to enter through the narrow door? Well, I think a good explanation of that is found here. Uh, John MacArthur says this. He says, This signifies a great struggle against conflict. Christ was not suggesting that anyone could merit heaven by striving for it. No matter how rigorously they labored, sinners could never save themselves. Salvation is solely by grace, not by works. But entering the narrow gate is nonetheless difficult. Why? Difficult because of its cost in terms of human pride, because of the sinner's natural love for sin, and because of the world's and Satan's opposition to truth. See, that's why we start. We don't strive to earn salvation. We can't. But we nevertheless recognize that it's difficult to repent and believe. Why? Because it costs us in terms of our human, we have to admit that we are helpless sinners. And you know what, a lot of people don't want to hear that, do they? But it's the truth. It costs us in terms of human pride. It costs us because of our natural love for sin. And because the world opposes us and Satan opposes us, that's why we must strive to enter through the narrow door. So we must then, how do we enter this narrow door to life? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance, a change of mind which results in a change of course. We turn away from sin and we turn away from self-reliance and we turn toward Jesus and rely on him. And we must do this today before it is too late. So what? I want us to take away this thought again. Enter the kingdom of God through the narrow door of true faith in Jesus. So I would ask, have you entered? Have you entered through the narrow door? Are you narrow-minded? Do we have any narrow-minded people here? Well, we need to be narrow-minded on this matter of where salvation lies. And not because we're arrogant and think we have all the answers, but because what? We are simply following Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh and who is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what he says. Repentance and faith, turn away from sin, receive the gift of eternal life in Jesus who perfectly kept God's moral law, who took the punishment for our sin, who died on the cross for our sin, who rose from the grave in victory in order that we might follow him into life. But isn't it also true though that the narrow way that leads to life is also brings about a narrow way of life for us who are followers of Jesus? Repentance and faith isn't a one-time deal, is it? Now, it's true. How many times do you get saved? Once, right? But isn't a lo- isn't life as a follower of Jesus a life of daily repentance and faith? Absolutely, it is. I was just talking with someone earlier this morning, and and who was uh, lamenting a little bit about his his. Uh, tendency toward sin or sinfulness and I said well you know what I got a little secret for you me too right every day is a day of repentance and faith in Jesus repentance and faith is a way of life for the follower of Jesus cling to him and proclaim that he and he alone is the way the truth and the life Let's pray. Father, thank you for a savior who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves, that he met all the righteous requirements of your law. He is perfect. He was perfect. He is perfect. And thank you, Lord, that he gives us that gift of his very own perfection, credits it to us who don't deserve it at all, Received as a gift through faith in Him. Lord, I pray if there is someone here now who is hearing this, and maybe your Spirit is touching their heart or their mind right now, Lord, that that person would turn away from sin and self reliance and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, in His perfect life, in His substitutionary death on the cross and his victory over the grave and his resurrection. And Lord, there are many here I know who are followers of Jesus who still struggle with sin and temptations. We all do, Lord. But Lord, repentance and faith is the way into the kingdom, but it's also a way of, it's daily life for us as followers of Jesus. May we stand firm in him, persevere in him, Cling to him. Hold fast to him. Abide in him, for we know that he is the vine and we are the branch. And we can produce no fruit apart from him. So may we daily, Lord, repent of sin and turn in faith to him, trusting in him, Lord, to empower us for righteous living, to be honored and glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.